Thank you very much for allowing me to sit in your circle this evening. I feel uh, grateful and honored to be in your retreat for this time. And I wasn't sure, as perhaps some of you are, whether it was right that I come in or not. Prior to the retreat, Marlene and I, Conda and I, others had talked about should I make myself available if people wanted or not. And I said, well, I'm willing to if it would be of service in some way. And I hope that it is. These retreats for people of color within this tradition of practice began in some ways about 10 years ago. And you very much have Ralph to thank for um, a great deal that's happened since that time, because it was really his inspiration and a conversation that we had shared together while teaching in New Mexico about um, the impoverishment of the Buddhist world in America, looking out and seeing just white faces. So we did the first day for people of color here, or I think Ralph and I, trying to remember who else helped, um, about 10 years ago. And uh, our thought was, well, maybe after we do a few days or a few events like that, then we'll do some that are mixed with some kind of element of diversity and working on diversity as part of the practice that we share. But even in that first day, there were about 50 folks. And by the end of the day, people said, you know, this is too important to have um, a space like this. I don't want to do anything else with it for a while. One guy stood up and he said, you know, it feels so good to be here because I've been really lonely. I'm the only black Buddhist vegetarian doctor that I know. And I said, well, how long do you think it would be good to do this for? And they said, oh, 10 or 20 years. Then maybe it'll be time. I also come with a very deep respect for what you do here together, the, the practice that you share. Um, my own background is of racial, ethnic heritage, is Jewish and Turkish. Although, um, when somebody asks about my being Jewish and Buddhist, I say, as Ramdas did, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. Um, my grandfather came from Turkey, my other grandparents from uh, Russia and uh, Poland. And I grew up white identified. But when I spoke to my grandparents, they described what it was like to get beat up, kept out of certain neighborhoods, spit on, um, in danger in their houses if they went to the wrong places at the wrong times. And then my parents went to college and did the whole assimilation thing. And um, so I grew up not really in touch with that immediate suffering 
that comes to anybody who's a person of color in this society. I've also had the privilege of working, in addition to a number of these retreats, the first people of color retreat that we did here, a number of us taught together, first one some years ago in New Mexico with Conda and Ralph and others in attendance. I've also had the privilege of working with Luis Rodriguez, uh, who is a wonderful Latino elder and poet, Maladoma Somme, a West African medicine man, and Ralph and Michael Mead, doing retreats focusing solely on the issues of diversity and race um, with young men from East Los Angeles, Watts, and Oakland from the inner cities. And I guess I would say this really simply, that I see that racism is the most central and deepest wound of our culture and our time. And without it being faced and addressed, um, all the enormous suffering of the world will continue. I also know that in coming into a retreat and in the other people of color retreats that I have had the privilege of sitting in, that the people of color who come to sit carry the trauma and suffering of the society that the society doesn't want to deal with. That we carry in some way not only our own suffering, but what's placed on us as the great sufferings of the world that's unwilling to face them. James Baldwin put it this way, he said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once it is gone, their hate, they will be forced to deal with their own pain, and they don't want to do so. I mean, that's not news to you. We live in a culture of denial and a culture what, of what Maladoma called the ungrieved dead, where we haven't learned to grieve for the countless young men who are warehoused in our prisons, for the countless lives that were lived on this soil as slaves or sharecroppers, for the genocide of the natives of this place. And without that grief, he said, your streets are crowded with the ungrieved dead. You will never, as a culture, be free until you grieve. John Gatto, who was the New York City uh, Teacher of the Year a few years ago, stood up in front of the, the mayor the school board and a thousand city officials and parents to receive his award as teacher of the year and castigated the whole group for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. He went on, think of the things that are killing us as a nation, drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, 
the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what your brand of schooling is producing in our children as well. Then he quit. So I bow to you and to your courage to come and sit and take refuge in these times and be willing with all that each of you carry to work with it in your spiritual life in this form. And I know lots of you have other forms and you know rich spiritual lives for many years. So I hope this form is one, too, since you've come, that nourishes and serves you. And more than anything, I see it as a space within which we are allowed to open. Somebody gave me this birthday card a few years ago. It's called the Dalai Lama's Birthday Party. It's from the drugstore. <clears throat> it shows a picture of the Dalai Lama in his sunglasses. You know how he is. Um, and a few monks behind him in robes smiling. He opens this great big present and ribbons are on the floor this big box and he's looking inside you can't see anything and he exclaims wow nothing just what I always wanted <laughs> in some way that's really what a retreat is about is it's about the space so that we can come back and feel ourselves and value ourselves and treasure ourselves It's a place to quiet the mind and open the heart and heal. And it's really ancient. Every wise culture, the shamans and the wise people of Africa and Latin America and Asia and North America, the indigenous wise women, they all knew that we need time to breathe and sit quietly, walk among the trees and listen to live a sane and wise life. So what I would like to now go on to speak of is not so much something that I would teach, but it's really the words of my elders. This tradition from which this center comes, of Theravada Buddhism, the word Theravada means the way of the elders. So this tradition is the way of the elders of the forest of Southeast Asia and India. And my elders said, when you begin your spiritual journey, whenever it is, you don't begin anew. You begin with the spirit of your elders and your ancestors and their ancestors, this ancient path that we have all traveled, those of us who would awaken. And so when I went to practice in the forests and the monasteries there, I was the only white identified person. I was the only Western person among, you know, hundreds of other people at the time I was there. Um, I was loved and treated with such respect. And I asked about it. I asked my elder. And he said that the teachings of the Buddha, he called the Blessed One, were to receive every being who comes into the temple as if they, too, are the, are the gift 
of awakening to the world, every single one. Oh, nobly born, they would say as you come in and bow to you, remember who you really are. There's a phrase in the Buddhist text, oh, nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, of the awakened ones, of the great elders of the world, do not forget your true nature, your true heart. One of the stories my elder told to me, which is a historical story, was about Emperor Ashoka, who lived in India 2,300 years ago. And um, so he was living just at the time of the rise of Greek civilization, of white kind of civilization, so to speak, although somebody asked Gandhi what he thought of Western civilization, and he said it would be a good idea. <laughs> but nevertheless, King Ashok lived just when Greek and that kind of Western so-called civilization was developing in the Mediterranean, when the Egyptian empire was still alive, though in its declining centuries, when there were great empires in Africa and in Latin America and elsewhere. And King Ashok conquered all of the subcontinent of India. He was a great warrior. And one day after a battle to conquer the whole southern part of the continent, he was sitting in his tent on the battlefield, surrounded by the bodies of those who had died, his own soldiers and the soldiers and warriors from the other side. Um, so much suffering and bloodshed. And he was sitting there, having conquered all this. And as the story is written, off in the distance, walking across the edge of the battlefield, was a monk, peacefully walking along the edge of the forest, one side to the other with his bowl. And the emperor said, bring that monk over here. And the monk, when summoned, arrived. And King Ashoka said, how is it sitting here and weeping at the destruction that I have been a part of, the loss of these men that I loved, who lived with me for so many years and have died, the destruction of this battlefield. How is it that I, who am the emperor of India, who have palaces and horses and elephants and everything that you could imagine under the sun, am so unhappy? How is it that I, who have everything, suffer so greatly in my heart, and you, who has nothing, can walk with such grace and ease as I see it. And this monk was an elder, was a wise person. And he turned and looked at the emperor with what in India is called the glance of mercy. It is that seeing not with the eyes, but seeing with the heart that in a moment when we're seen that way can change our life. And I brought this picture of the teacher of one of my teachers, Ramana Maharshi, to put here on the bell because he was known for that. He didn't teach 
through words very much. He was silent a lot. And when people would come to him, he would just look with so much compassion at them that it would change their life. So this monk looked at Emperor Ashok with so much mercy and compassion. And the emperor said, I cannot go on this way, teach me. And became a disciple of this monk and teacher and eventually created an empire which lasted for three or four hundred years, a lot longer than the U.S. of A., um, which was the greatest and justest empire in that whole Asian world for a long, long period. Um, the army was used to build roads and bridges and dig wells. Um, the riches of the kingdom were used to provide irrigation for the fields. The arts were encouraged. Women and children were not only protected, but were supported that they might blossom. It was one of the times in India, um, and there's still great stone temples and pillars with all the inscriptions from that time that one can find. One of the times in India when the human spirit blossomed into form. So what did this monk teach King Ashok, Emperor Ashok? He said, my teacher told me the story from his teacher and from his teacher about the Buddha, the awakened one, on the night of his enlightenment, when his heart became free and clear, looking out across the world and seeing human beings suffer in so many ways. And the tears streamed down the cheeks of the awakened one, the, the Buddha, after his enlightenment, was because he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, yet doing the very things that created suffering. And then he began to teach, first, the Four Noble Truths. This is how my elder taught me as well. The first noble truth, there is suffering in this world. I don't have to say any more than that to this circle of people. Individual and collective, the suffering that we know of living in a society that is still filled with hate and racism and prejudice and materialism, the suffering of our own lives of sickness and loss, of aging, depression, fear. The collective human suffering of war, injustice, hunger. So the Buddha said, if we are to awaken, the first truth we need to see deeply and clearly is this noble truth of suffering. Then the second, he said there is a cause for suffering in the world. The primary cause for human suffering is greed, hatred, and delusion, ignorance. And then it manifests greed as possessiveness, and hatred manifests as violence, and delusion manifests, and, and hatred as, as prejudice, and racism, and tribalism and then you get war and colonization. 
Men and women are free to choose anything in modern societies except to opt out. The ultimate treason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in the economics and the sale of goods and people must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. The indigenous world getting paved over. And we look, because we're in this time of so-called war, which is, I would just say, is just continued terrorist activity from the biggest bully, and a kind of, basically, a continuation of colonization. That's really, that's the, if anybody look at it very clearly. So the Buddha said, you want to see the cause of suffering? The cause is greed. The cause is hate. The cause is prejudice. The cause is delusion. Because there's enough food to feed everyone on this earth. There's enough oil and energy. There's too much greed. Then the Buddha said, there's a third noble truth that human beings must know and you all know as sons and daughters of the Buddha, in your own heart, in your own way, you have a wisdom that you were born with, that is your true nature. There is the possibility of an end to suffering, what is called the sure heart's release. And we know it individually and collectively. Joanna Macy puts it this way. She says, scientists can see even more quickly than the others of us that there's no technological fix, no magic bullet, no amount of computers, technology, internet that can save us from population explosion, climate disruption, poison by pollution, continuing warfare and racism, and extinction of plant and animal species. It is simple. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving our modern consumer economy. So the Buddha said there is an end to suffering, our own and our collective suffering, not by possessing and holding on, but by letting go by love and openness and graciousness, rather than by accumulation and possession. And then he taught the middle path, the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path, it's called, or the middle path. If you, he would say to others, would live free in your heart as I do, then discover for yourself that path of presence and compassion that neither grasps with greed nor resists with hatred, but rests with the heart open to the world in compassion. Trust the heart, the noble heart. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way, when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. 
they showed the way for everyone else to survive. And so though it may be daunting in a way, it is still the truth that human suffering comes from greed, hatred, and delusion. And then we have to look and say, well, what is our path in this world that has so much suffering and so much injustice? And the path that the elders offer is that of being present for this world, being willing to be present with the great heart of compassion and the eyes to see what is true. Now here we are on this retreat, practicing together. And the invitation of the elders and of your teachers here, of Kanda, Michelle, Ralph, Marlene, when she was here, is not just to know some theory about freedom of heart, but actually to work with our own lives very directly, our own body and mind. Nelson Mandela put it this way. He said, the truth is we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free. Amazing statement. There's this outer possibility. But we all can sense the possibility of greater freedom within ourselves and greater compassion. And that is already your awakened heart that knows that. So how do we do it? The recommendation in this lineage is that we practice the quality of mindfulness or sacred attention as one other translation and the quality of compassion and bring that to whatever we do so we can see clearly. So we sit and walk and eat. So how does that make freedom? Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi, Middle Eastern, sage, holy fool, went into a bank to cash a check one day. And they said, could you please identify yourself? He reached in his pocket and pulled out a small mirror and looked in it and said, yep, that's me, all right. When we sit in meditation, what happens is that we actually look in the mirror. You sit down, and then whatever's there arises to be known. The unfinished business of the heart, maybe it's grief that we've been too busy to feel because we've been just trying to keep it together, and you sit down and the tears start to run because we didn't have time to weep. Or the love that we have that we didn't express comes out and says, when I get back, I have to let that person know how much I care about them. What's in us waits to be received by our loving attention. When I went in the monastery, the main thing that they taught me in the beginning was how to bow. And it wasn't terribly easy. First of all, I'm awkward. I was gawky and, you know, awkward. And secondly, we don't know how to bow in this culture, you know. And so I do these kind of really awkward, and they'd all be laughing at me, you know, while I bowed. But I, I wanted to do it, so I, I gradually learned to bow some. And then one day one of the elders came to me and said, well, you bow now a little bit better when you come in the great meditation hall or when you go to see the master. But, you know, if you really want to do it correctly, you should also bow to your elders. 
I said, that's fine. I want to be a good monk, you know, good boy. Who are my elders? He said, well, strictly speaking in this order, your elders are everyone who has ordained for a longer period than you as a monk or a nun. And I said, oh, you mean everybody. He said, that's right. <laughs> so I go around bowing to people, you know. And sometimes it was cool because they were people you really want to bow to. You see them and you go, oh, this person, what light they carry, you know. But sometimes it was this young punk monk who, <laughs> who ordained the week before me because his mother wanted him to. It was like a bar mitzvah, right? You got to go do it. And he could care less about the booty. He was just eating his food and putting in his time. And I'm bowing like he's some great sage, you know. Or some old guy who was there on the rice farmer's retirement plan, right? He didn't have anything else to do. I'll go in the monastery. They feed me. I don't have to work. And I'm bowing, you know, oh, great master. And he's chewing betel nutting and looking around. He's never meditated a day in his life. And I'm thinking, I want to bow to these people, right? But I had to. So I kept looking. And then I began to see, because it was intention, I didn't want to, that if I looked, there was something that I could find to bow to in each person. For the old guys, it was the wrinkles around their eyes, all they'd suffered and lived through and triumphed over to get to that day. And I bowed to them for that. And the young punk, you know, I saw his vitality, his, his sass, and I said, who knows what he's going to do with this life? Anything's possible, this young guy. And I just bowed to the potential that was in him. And after a while, I bowed when I took a shower and the, by the well, you know, and I bowed when I went in the eating hall. And if it moved, I bowed to it. That's basically. <laughs> and that was the spirit that the elders taught about this meditation. It wasn't so much a striving to get somewhere, but a learning how to be respectful and present with whatever arises. So we sit and meditate. And first, we become aware of the body. I mean, first, you've got to get into your body, right? That line in James Joyce where he wrote of one character, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, right? <laughs> so the first task is, okay, you know, body to mind, come on back home, we're here. And you can feel it. You sit down, you feel it in the yoga, you feel it when you meditate. You start to pay attention, and then your mind goes off a thousand places. And gently, you bring it back. You breathe in the yoga. You do your walking meditation. You breathe as you sit. And little by little, over the days, you start to re-inhabit this human body, which is precious. And every elder in every tradition, they know one another. If you get an elder from Africa and an elder from Native Americans and from Asia, they look at each other, they just laugh. They say, oh, yeah, elder. They know. They all say, come be here on this earth in your body. But it's not easy, because as we sit, what happens is all the tension and pain that we get heaped on us in this world and that gets stored in our body starts to release. And so there's a kind of respect and gentleness that you need to give to your own body. Because you'll be sitting, minding your own business, and your shoulders will hurt, and your back and your jaw. Why is that? You're doing something wrong. But because all the layers of tension start to open, and they need to be received with a bow, all that your body has carried. How do we touch the pain 
that has been given to us. The problem, says the poet Adrian Rich, unstated in, until now, is how to live in a damaged body in a world where pain is meant to be gagged, uncured, ungrieved over. The problem is to connect without hysteria the pain of anyone's body with the pain of the world's body. And so there's a kind of deep body work. And I say that body work like the work of sitting on the earth, rubbing your hands and feet in the earth, of coming back to be embodied in this human, precious human form, because it was given to you and to me as an act of love. It, it is amazing to be alive, and yet the world has placed upon us such things that it is hard to live in. Eduardo Galeano, the great Latin poet, puts it this way, the church says the body's a sin, Science says the body's a machine. Business says, or advertising says, the body is a good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. <laughs> and what we're asked to do is to come back into our body over and over in a gentle way. Now, as you sit, there will come pleasant sensations and there will come pain. Not just the pain of your knees because it's an unaccustomed posture, but all the stuff we carry. What you're asked to do as it comes is to feel the place of pain that we usually meet with aversion and try and get rid of and breathe and move and try and do anything to not feel because it's hard. And instead get bigger like space. Soften. Breathe. And it's as if you were holding a child that was crying. Hold that pain with mercy. Because you know what happens when you hold a crying child instead of saying shut up or putting the child away? When you hold the child that's crying in pain after a time, it feels that it's being held, doesn't it? And it gradually trusts and lets go. And that's what you're doing with your bodies. Over and over, coming back, feeling what arises, breathing, and making space for it to open. The deepest layers, the cells of the body. Then, said the elders, after we take this seat halfway between heaven and earth in this human form as a Buddha, we sit on the earth with the dignity of a king or queen in this human body and let our body come to rest then there come all the feelings if we are to undertake this practice. And how do we touch the feelings? This is from the Lama Chogyam Trumpa. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore, and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come simply from having been mistreated. 
You don't feel sad only because someone has insulted you or you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure and raw, and even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel touched. And yet it is this tender heart of the spiritual warrior that has the power to transform the world. So we sit and gradually, you can feel it over the days, learn to become more and more present in our bodies. And then the different emotions will come, joy and sadness, restlessness and fear. What to do? Again, the practice of mindfulness or sacred attention and compassion is to bow to what arises and make space for it. You're sitting and you feel sleepy. What do you do when you're sleepy? Ah, I shouldn't feel sleepy. You get angry at it. In one monastery, sleep was called the poor man's nirvana. <laughs> what it is, it's tapping you on the shoulder. It's saying, listen, honey, you're tired, you know, or hey, brother, remember me, I'm your body. You've been running me around, and now that you sit down, I want you to remember that, that we've been working really hard. Remember me. Or re so you can hold it and be present for it and say, oh, this is the sleepy energy of life. I mean, I had a lot of trouble with it. It was so much trouble. My teacher said, all right, I know what to do for you. Go, there's a well near your cottage. Sit on the edge of it. That will help you to meditate. <laughs> so, you know, look down. It's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> 60 feet. Straighten up. And you discover it's just sleepiness. It's an energy that's workable. Restlessness comes. I've got to get up. I can't sit still. What do you do? You bow to it. You name it gently. Oh, here's restlessness. Restless, restless. Show me your dance. Let me feel you. Oh, but I can't do it. It's so much I'm going to die. What to do? Die. Okay, I'll die of restlessness. Take me. I'll be the first person to die of restlessness at a people of color retreat at Spirit Rock. You know? At least they'll give me a cool funeral, right? And the minute you say, all right, take me, the minute you say, all right, I'll die, you know what happens? It gets easier because most of the difficulty is actually our resistance to what's true. The minute we make space and say, all right, let me feel this, things soften. Or you get angry, which is an important energy. I was so angry in the forest monastery, my teacher said, good. The idea isn't that you suppress this stuff. We need this energy. He said, good, you've got to learn about anger. This is the hot season. Go back to your little hut, you know. It had a tin roof. Close the windows and the doors. Wrap all your robes around yourself and sit all day and be angry. And you're going to be angry. You sit in the fire of anger and come back and tell me about it. I want you to learn about it. So the idea isn't to get rid of it, but it's to bow to it and say, all right, show me your dance. Let me feel this energy. And it has a story. It has emotions. It has a whole bodily experience. Many things to learn when we actually sit in the presence of anger. It becomes a teacher. Or judgment comes. You're sitting here, minding your own business, and some voice comes and says, you're not doing it right. You should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. You know that voice? And not only that, somebody else walks in the room, you hear the door. They shouldn't be coming in late, you know, and they shouldn't. 
So then what do you say? I shouldn't be judging. Stop judging. But what's that, right? Just more judgment, right? So what do you do? You bow to it. You say, thank you for your opinion, right? It's somebody else's tape that was put in there. It's not even you. It's some old voice that's saying something or other about how you should be meditating. They are not even here anymore. It's just their sort of echo. Thank you for your opinion. I appreciate it. And then you go back to your breathing or back to the body sensation. You name what arises. The shamans, the elders knew this. To know the name for something is to give us a power over it. Fear arises. What do you do with fear? I mean, the whole, you know, white America is now afraid. Well, I think it was Ralph that said, welcome to the hood, right? <laughs> I mean, part of the problem with these kind of outbursts of, of terrorism and suffering is that the weight, in the end, falls again on people of color. That's the problem, you know. But maybe white people are just beginning to get a little bit of a taste of what it's like to live in a world where you're not safe, which is the world that people live in all the time. So what do we do with fear? Again, Mullah Nasruddin was sitting in the tea shop in Baghdad one day, talking to his friends, and he said, you know, I single-handedly caused a whole, a whole huge tribe of bloodthirsty desert bandits to run. And their friend said, how did you do that? His friend said, how did you do that? And he said, it was simple. I ran and they ran after me. <laughs> what we are afraid of will follow us. We all know that. So the dignity that one can find in meditation is the possibility when fear arises to bow to it and say, oh, this is fear, I know you. And to give it its name, fear, fear, what it feels like. And the first time or the 10th time or the 20th time, it'll be hard. But at some point you'll bow to it, fear will come and you'll say, oh, I know you, this is just fear. I've sat with this before. And somehow we get bigger than that. We don't believe it anymore. It tells its story. Thank you for your opinion. As the poet Hafiz from Persia said, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. So we learn to notice it. Now when you pay attention, whether it's sadness, sad, sad, and your tears come, or anger, or maybe it's joy or excitement or love, and you bow to it and make space for it, one of three things will happen. It might go away, you name it fear, 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 and after you're with it for a while, fear, it diminishes and you think, oh, I really did good with that. Oh, pride, pride, that's okay, all right, <laughs> and you notice that. Then you breathe a little bit more. Or it might stay the same, fear, fear, and it's kind of the same for a while. Or it might get worse, one of three things, right? Fear, fear, this is not bad, fear, fear, oh, terror, terror, <laughs> you know. Terror, I feel like I'm dying, 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 whatever. And it's not your job to make it do something. It really becomes your job as the Buddha, sitting halfway between heaven and earth, to say, I will sit in the face of the 10,000 joys and sorrows and keep this heart of compassion open. Compassion for the fear, compassion for the anger, compassion for the love that wants to express itself. 
and that this is really possible. Become the space, that honorable space. We talk about sitting a lot, and not as much about walking meditation, so I read you a piece about walking meditation just to help include it. And I think I'm already finished my time, but I'm not done, so go a little bit longer. I had a person on a retreat who hated walking meditation. She said, I don't mind sitting. But I go out there and walk, I am so bored. You know, I don't get nothing out of it, you know. And this was somebody who was on a month or two-month retreat. What should they do? So I gave them some suggestions. None of them helped. Finally, I said, all right, there's one way you can learn walking meditation. That is to stop sitting and just walk. And then you'll find out why it's so difficult, because I didn't know either. So I said, spend a day just walking. And then I got this note. Dear Jack, long walking meditation completed. I did all morning. That was enough. (laughs) Thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant to it, but circumstances taught me much more. I chose to walk in the lower walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. (laughs) Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends in 40 minutes. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, except when he paused to remove a noisy layer of clothing or to drink. I tried loving-kindness practice. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. I stood there noting hate, hate, hate. After a while, I just stood in the middle of the room and wept, tears, tears. Then I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed and he paced and pounded. And pretty soon it was all the same to me, his noise, my breath, the movement of my body. And after an hour and a half, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected, (laughs) mostly just different. I think I learned something. Thank you. (laughs) So it's body, it's the whole array of emotions that we bow to. It's the mind. The, the, the next thing that's critical to be aware of, you know, um, I think it was Sir James Mackenzie in 1886, an English physician who was studying asthma, brought to a patient who was very allergic to roses and their smell. He brought to this young woman who would have an asthma attack from roses a beautiful red rose under a glass globe and pulled it off and she went into this full-blown asthma attack and the rose was silk, was paper. And it was the first kind of, I mean, you all know this, we know it instinctively. Our elders knew this, that what is in the mind affects and creates the body and how we live. That's the sort of the Western scientific world catching up. So the Buddha put it this way. He said, my friends, beloved friends, how can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. And once mastered, no one can help you as much 
not even your loving father or mother. So the next instruction from the Buddha is as we get quiet, as we quiet ourselves, to begin to look at the nature of the mind itself and all its stories, judging, remembering, planning. And you see that it tells a lot of stories, some of which have good information from you, but a lot are just reruns, you know. Top ten tunes, here we are playing the same thing. All these things, Mark Twain put it this way. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. All these stories we worry about, and anxious, and tell ourselves, there's enough suffering, and then our mind adds to it on top of it. So what do we do? When we sit, we start to see the stories, what are healthy ones, what are unskillful ones, the ones that we get caught in that are destructive to us and might be useful to let go of. You just bow to it. Oh, I know you. That's that story. Thank you for your opinion. Let it go by. What are the stories that come that are really important? The stories of dignity, respect, love. Those are ones that we might want to follow. As the Buddha says, by looking into the mind, we can see that which brings us trouble, releasing that, and that which leads to blessings. What's important as we practice here together is that we have enough space and time to sit and actually know what's going on in our mind very directly. Because usually we're so much at the effect of all the stuff we have to deal with. Lao Tzu, Chinese sage, says, do you have the patience to wait until your mind settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the wise action arises by itself? And that's one of the beautiful qualities of elders is that they know how to listen and wait and then respond from the heart. Because the mind, in the end, doesn't solve our problems. As one of my teachers said, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. The mind separates and divides and so forth. And really what we need to do is see the play of the mind from the place of the heart of compassion. And then we get to see, finally, body, feelings, mind, the Dharma itself, the laws that govern this world, which we all know, but they become more in your face on a retreat. They're so obvious. Things keep changing. You can't stop it. You have one sitting one way, and a little while later, it's different. I saw a cartoon in the San Francisco Chronicle that showed a man on a camel followed by his family. He had his rugs and baggage. And the second person, his wife, on a slightly smaller camel with all her belongings, and then three smaller camels with the kids. The last little child was talking to the father, and he was answering back. He said, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads, for crying out loud. The idea in meditation is not that you get to some state, all right, I'm meditating, and I have it. I got it. Oh, this is it. It's like holding your breath. I got it. Don't want to let go. Ah, the idea is actually to learn that everything breathes. The heart breathes. The body breathes. The mind breathes. To learn to be flexible and open to this breathing of life, that things change, and that holding on doesn't help. Actually, letting go and being present 
what's called beginner's mind is the wisdom, to be here for this moment and this one. We also gradually learn that it's not the things of the world that have the power, but the spirit underneath them and with which we meet them. Soul force, if you will, like Martin Luther King Jr. who said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, and we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours as well. When we sit, we can begin to feel the power that's not just in the experience of pleasant and painful or joy or sorrow, but that soul or heart, that quality of being that is timeless. And then we also see in our own way, my elder said, that what seeds we plant are what will become born in the future. The law of karma, or karma vipaka it's called. Vipaka is the result. You get the result already. We have that. But karma simply means intention. How do we respond? One Native American elder was asked recently by his grandson, Oh, grandfather, or maybe it was grandmother, she was asked, Oh, grandmother, what is this whole terrorist war in the Middle East feel like to you? And she said, my grandson, it feels like two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is out for vengeance, mean and cruel, and the other wolf is compassionate, nurturing, forgiving. And the little grandson said, well, grandmother, which of these wolves will win? And the grandmother looked back and said, whichever one I feed. So when we look with the eyes of wisdom, we see that given the circumstances of the world with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, what will manifest is how we respond. What seeds do we wish to plant? And no matter how bad it is, do we want to plant the seeds of beauty for our children and our grandchildren? In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, they are placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered, and all work ceases. Every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. And then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time about all the good things the person in the center has done in their lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All their positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony can last several days. At the end, the circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. 
Can we meet this world, even the sufferings of it, with our beauty? This is the path of the bodhisattva, of the being who commits themselves to plant seeds of dignity and beauty in this world for the children and generations beyond, no matter what happens. Like Cesar Chavez, who said, when we're really honest with ourselves, we must admit that our lives are re all that really belong to us. So, it is how we use our lives that determines what kind of person we are. And it's my deepest belief that only by giving, and giving of our lives and our beauty, do we find life. I'm convinced that the truest act of courage, the strongest act of humanity, is to sacrifice for something higher. To be human is to suffer for what we believe. God help us to be human. I bow to you, to the courage that you bring to your practice and the dignity of your lives, to the spirit that has carried you to this day, not just in this retreat, but through all that each of you have lived. And I wish you, or I bid, that you practice with great compassion, because it's the only way that this body and heart and mind can open. Living is so hard, really, in this human realm, and in particular, in this world for people of color, that the only possibility, if we are to open, is to do it with tremendous tenderness and <coughs> compassion for whatever arises. And then my hope is that something beautiful that's already in you will feel watered and fertilized and nourished just by this time of not having to do anything else but listen, and that you'll be able to bring it back as a blessing to the ones you love and to the people in your community and to the world. And I end with a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian poet. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weak broth. What you held in your hand and counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Mayan Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. And see how this could be you, how he too journeyed through the night with plans and the same simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know and acknowledge sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow and speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes 
and sends you out into the day to post letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like the closest shadow or friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.